ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestle Horror. All right, greetings, viewers and listeners. Meet Hook Jim here, the Wrestle Horror Podcast. With me, as always, my co-host Donnie Hoover. Donnie, how's it going today? Oh, doing good, man. Doing good. Trying to stay out of the heat. It's been hotter than heck here in Ohio lately. And uh, joining us sometimes is the slacker, John Orlando. John? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, I just would like it to be known that it, it takes a lot of work to be as good at slacking as I am. You know, <laughs> so it's not easy. Not anybody can do it. <laughs> and our guest on this episode of the Wrestle Horror Podcast is Joe Dombrowski. He's a ring announcer. He's a color commentator tater play by play he's got a laundry list of things he does in the wrestling industry joe how are you this evening i'm i'm doing well i'm uh, enjoying uh, my office here at home in pittsburgh and just getting some work done with merchandising and uh doing my thing like you've said i have, i wear pretty much every possible hat there's been in pro wrestling at one point or another so uh just uh, trying to adapt to the circumstances and, and truck along, man. I uh, hope you guys are doing well, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the show. Uh, we are all doing great here. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. You know, you've, you've, you've done a lot in this business. I mean, TNA, Ring of Honor, Global Force, I, the list goes on and on. I mean, how did you get started in all this? Um, the beginning for me, uh, I always knew I wanted to be involved in this industry somehow. I didn't know necessarily what role or how I would do that. Um, I discovered independent wrestling on TV when I was a little kid. I didn't really have the ability to, to, to go out to the shows in person. Um, but when I got a little bit older, I... Um, Heard an ad on the radio for live IWC Pro Wrestling advertising a main event of Jerry the King Lawler versus Kamala, the Ugandan Giant. And this was 2002. And this was an event probably only about a half hour from my house. Um, and Lawler and Kamala, I've, I've always been a big fan of Memphis wrestling, even back when I was a little kid and I didn't really know what Memphis wrestling was. I'd get the, the commercial tapes in the malls and they'd have all the rare matches from the territories. And one of them was Jerry Lawler versus Kamala. It's one of the first matches I ever owned. So to see that in person in front of me, 2002 was, was very attractive to me. It was, it, was a, it was a hell of a draw. And there were other guys on the, the event I knew, like Balls Mahoney and Little Guido and uh, Christian York and Joey Matthews and guys I'd grown up watching on independent TV locally, like Shirley Doe and Dennis Gregory. And I knew I wanted to be there. And when I got to that event and just being so close to that ring and being able to interact with the talent and meet guys during intermission, um, I was blown away. I was mesmerized. It was a personable feeling you get that you can't get going to a WWE event or going to WCW event. And I went, went to, to every single event I possibly could after that. And um, as luck would have it, about four or five months later, the Spanish class I was in in high school, I was a junior in high school at this point, needed a fundraiser. And I knew IWC Wrestling did fundraisers. And basically my first job in wrestling, job quote unquote, was 
co-promoting and middlemanning an entire whole ass wrestling event at my high school at 17 years old um, to get IWC wrestling and Northgate high school together. Uh, CM Punk was the main event that night. Uh, he's gone on to do a couple cool things. Um, but uh, that was my start doing that, selling tickets, hanging posters, doing the grunt work as they say. And being that I was only 17, I couldn't do anything actual physically. I couldn't be a guest referee or a guest manager and like that. Uh, I don't remember if it was my idea or if it was the promoter, Norm Connors, but somebody had the idea to stick me on commentary with a guy by the name of Jeff Gorman, who uh, would become my mentor and, and a great friend of me. And uh, I sat in with Gorman for most of the show, did the color to his play-by-play, and I don't mind telling you, I was absolutely rotten. It was terrible. Um, if you play it back now, I'm just going to cringe the whole two hours. But it was a foot in the door. Um, a month later, I started re- writing for IWCWrestling.com, doing the results. I thought I was back to being a fan, but I got that tap on the shoulder at the end of the night. Hey, you want to help out with this? And six months later, they needed another body in the commentary booth, and I came in a little more prepared and a little more um, – measured and calm and uh from being so inexperienced i did a hell of a job i must have because i've been a a regular there ever since and and it just kept building from there you know i gotta say joe um i understand where you're coming from because uh last year at the arnold which is a an event that now wrestling does um i got put in there for two hours as a commentator and i was horrible and I've been watching wrestling for, you know, I'm, I'm 55 years old, so I've been watching wrestling a long time. And I, quite frankly, I was just terrible as a commentator, uh, color commentator. But, you know, you learn as you go. I mean, there's really no set way to, to do this without doing it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think the, a big mistake that a lot of people make um, – with commentaries is to assume that it's easy and assume that uh, because you've watched it or because you've, you know, um, call matches in your backyard or with your action figures or whatever the case it is that you can just make that leap. And it took me a long time. I would say it took me two years to get acceptable and then another two years to get decently good, at least as far as a handle of what I'm supposed to be doing, because um, as JR would say, you have to be the, the lyrics to the music the guys in the ring are playing. And that's understanding um, their characters and personalities on a deeper level. It's understanding the story in the ring on a deeper level. It's being able to not just understand that, but be able to communicate that to an audience that's watching in a completely different way than you are. And many of them are maybe watching for the very first time, but you need to suck them in and make them understand um what's happening and why and uh that was a hard process to try to figure out exactly what i'm there for and a lot of indie guys that have been doing this for years and years just think it's about making cheap jokes or popping the boys and making inside references or or getting yourself over and and um or there are guys that that try genuinely hard and just call moves and it's great that you know the name of moves but I can see that they're moves. I need to know why they're happening. What's the what's the the end result? What's the con uh, the the uh, consequence of something like that? And there's just so many X factors to the job 
Um, even to this day, I don't think I've been fully 100% happy with any broadcast I've done because there's always little things nitpick and there's always, you know, like you said, there's no one way to do it. There's no right and wrong. It's always just, eh, was that the best thing I should have said there? Um, but it truly is a very, very difficult job and you got to be on your on your toes for, for three hours and, and sometimes more. What would you say is the uh, key attribute that anybody going into commentary should have? Um, willingness to learn, okay. passion, um, and, and understanding of the business. And if you don't understand the business, obviously, obviously at 17, I thought I understood the business and I thought I knew everything there was to know. And I was, you know, bona fide expert, but you know, after a while I learned just enough to realize how little I knew. Um, you have to be ready to adapt and just get better, watch your stuff, study your stuff, be a student of the game, listen to the Jim Rosses and the Gordon Solis and the Lance Russells. And even a guy that doesn't get a lot of love, like a Michael Cole, um, you can learn something from everybody. And um, my philosophy was always, um, well, they're on TV and I'm not. So what are they doing that I should be doing? And how can I do better to do justice to everybody in the ring. And I think that that's the other thing that people need is respect for the craft that's in front of them, because I understood at a young age, it's not about me and I'm not more important than anybody out there. My job is to help the guys in the ring. And if you're, if you're trying to do that, then automatically you're, you're doing better than a lot of people because some people still don't grasp that it's not, you know, amateur comedy night or whatever it may be. You're, you know, you're there as, as kind of the uh, the seasoning on the uh, on the main course. Yeah, that's a, a, pro, a point that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you mentioned that you guys were just a product to help the the, the wrestlers. Uh, a few episodes ago, we had a, the Golden Idol Mark Koval on here from Steel Domain, a uh, manager, and he said that basically a manager is a tool for the wrestlers to use to get bring their story along. And do you feel that that's kind of the same role as a play-by-play and a color? Because I know, I mean, people don't really understand the importance of play-by-play, I don't think, to some extent, to where it can make a break a match. You know, it can make a match seem worse, or it could put, it could take a, a decent match and put it on a whole new level by the way the color and the play-by-play guys are portraying this the story behind it. Um, so are you, do you consider yourself in that aspect, too? And do you try to take every match to the next level that you've seen deserves it, or how does that work for you? Without a doubt. I think um, it, it always blows my mind when I see these larger independent companies who will spend $5,000 on their talent roster that night and have six or eight people flown in from around the country. And I'll look at the, I'll look at the card. I'll look at the, mo- the money that's gone into it. And I will know for a fact that the play-by-play guy is getting paid $0. And you get what you pay for. And unfortunately not just announcers and managers, but referees too. A lot of times people overlook the importance of all of them and uh, the fact that you get what you pay for. And a referee can ruin a match. A manager can ruin a match. An announcer can ruin a match. Um, We're all working together in synergy to accomplish the same goal. The same goal is to generate interest and generate revenue through the fan base, through the the stories we tell and the characters and personalities that we present. I can be a great asset if you come to me and tell me, hey, watch out when I do this because it's called this and it's going to lead to this. 
Um, or if you tell me, hey, I know you missed last month, but here's what happened. I came out, I said this and this, it's how we set this up. Um, but that, that is all we are. We are, we are tools to um, get across the, the ones that are theoretically drawing money, and that's the talent. Nobody ever um, came to an event to watch me sit at a table and call wrestling. Never happened. I, I doubt I've drawn one ticket personally based on my job description. Um, but I would like to think that a lot of people may have chosen to go to an event because of a certain sound bite they heard in a video package or because of a certain way a message was conveyed that maybe helped them relate to what the person in the ring was thinking or feeling. Um, all of us are working together and all of us can use one another to get ahead. And it, it's not, um, you know, the referee's not your enemy just because they try to enforce rules. Uh, the announcer is not uh, your enemy just because they may say a thing or two that you don't like. Um, it's all about working together and, and getting the best out of it for everybody. If I could ask the question that's kind of related to what you just said, Joe, you mentioned, you know, that there are some indie companies that spend a lot of money on talent. And I know you've worked lots of different places. So could you maybe give us a little bit of a <laughs> Maybe a similarities and differences between maybe a smaller company, say, you know, um, IWC or Cleveland All Pro Wrestling back in the day versus working for a Ring of Honor or working for a TNA. What's some of the differences in the way in which you have to kind of adjust your job to fit the, the, the needs of those two different companies? Well, I mean, um, TNA and Ring of Honor are a lot um more difficult just in the sense there's more pressure and there's more um important eyeballs watching um you know cleveland all pro iwc and iwc less so now because they're live so i i, I still have to worry about you know when the video packages are coming and when we're, we're fading out of a segment and things of that nature but um, a, a run-of-the-mill independent company um a lot of times all right Here's a match listing. Do your thing. And I don't get produced. There's nobody in my ear. There's um, not a lot of intricate detail to really have to hammer home. A lot of it is me talking to talent or me watching footage, whatever the case may be. Um, Ring of Honor, you know, uh, it's a lot tighter. When you're working with somebody like Kevin Kelly, um, who will, you know, tell you if he thinks you're doing something wrong. Matt Stryker, who will pull you back if you're not giving him sound bites if you're not laying out at the right points they'll kind of guide you as you go um and they want you to get out of segments in a lesser amount of time sometimes these indie announcers the match will end both guys are in the back and they're still talking um you got to get out in the peak you know you've got to recognize when your segments climax and you've got to wrap it and go um tna i was more of a ring announcer um, that was only one day I was a fill in for Borash, but again, all those little things that Indies don't care about where you stand, if you sway, how you, your diction is, how, if you look sloppy, um, little things like that, that don't really matter on independence. Um, you're through a magnifying class in TNA and Ring of Honor because everybody's a star. Everybody's larger than life. Um, the lights are brighter. The cameras are sharper. So um, you're graded on a much more difficult curve. Um, 
I still get freedom to do my thing. They still trust mm -hmm. me. You know, mm -hmm. nobody's in my ear overproducing me or yelling at me. Um, but at the same time, you have to take kind of those things you've learned here and there. And it's like, this is the time to apply them. This is, this is the dance, if you will. Um, you know, so, so it's pressure, but it's good pressure because you have to be on your A game no matter what. Okay. So, Joe, let me ask you this. You've been a ring announcer. I'm a ring announcer. Um, what is the most important thing that a ring announcer needs to remember? Most important thing that a ring announcer needs to remember is that oftentimes they are the very first thing that a wrestling fan will see on the show. So their first impressions about what kind of an organization they are supporting will oftentimes comes, come from that ring announcer. And whether it's somebody well-groomed in a tuxedo, good posture with a nice booming uh, voice that can travel, or whether it's somebody in the, you know, untucked and unironed shirt, just kind of, you know, uh, 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 scraping their feet across the ground and, hey, uh, welcome to the wrestling show. Um, people are going to judge the product based on things like how professional does the ring look, how professional does the ring announcer look, um, you know, little things like that. People aren't going to outwardly criticize, but it's going to create an impression in the back of their mind. It's going to affect how they interpret things moving forward. And um, you, you talked about Cleveland All Pro Wrestling a moment ago. Um, a main reason Cleveland All Pro Wrestling got clearance to be on Sports Time Ohio um, semi-national cable is because the ring announcer Hank Hudson presented himself so well uh, in a tuxedo, um, carried himself like a true pro. And it, it added an extra ambiance to that uh, presentation. It wasn't just wrestling in a rundown building. It felt like an event and it felt important. Um, and that's the first most important thing a ring announcer needs to do. And the second most important thing is just once again, they're here to enhance the talent and they're here to keep the show moving and keep things rolling. We don't want to hear them talk for four or five minutes between matches and do their improv and do shtick. I mean, obviously you have to plug your sponsors and your concessions and it's great to interact with fans here and there and have a little more personable approach. But at the end, much like refs and commentators, it's not about you. So do your business and move on, move forward. And uh, I think the best kind of have that innate instinct to know, all right, here's time to stall. Here's time to move on. Here's time to plug this. Here's time to, 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 to move forward and um, just kind of control the surroundings and, and kind of act as not just a ring announcer, but almost like a makeshift stage manager too, because the music is going off of you. The, uh, you know, the entrances are going off of you. Sometimes the ring crews going off of you, the referees. So, um, just, just knowing why you're there and knowing uh, uh, how to keep pace and keep time. Uh, that That's great advice. And I'll tell you this, last year when I was uh, announcing for Donnie, uh, we were at the Ohio State Fair and it was, uh, it was hot. So I was in a polo shirt, um, but my voice was much more pr pronounced than it was in my first match. <laughs> uh, the first time I did a match for him at, at a venue you could barely hear me because I was nervous, that type of thing. But I was prepared for right. this year before COVID hit. I had a nice suit, a great, I had a nice new new bow tie, and my fancy red shoes that I haven't had a chance to wear yet. 
Um, and I'm still looking forward to that when we when we do these shows again because I've got my my look polished, I've got the voice, and I'm ready to do it. It's just getting this rid of this COVID shit. Yeah, and I think just that anticipation though is going to make it mean that much more. And I'll say this about COVID. Um, the one bright spot of COVID for me is the sense that I'm a stubborn individual that would never admit or acknowledge that I could have used a break or a little bit of a rest to recharge the batteries, but I 100% did. And that's what the past five months have turned into for me. I've, been, I've had a chance to work a lot on myself and, and get just my mental frame of mind back and just recharge my batteries. And um, I miss the road. And I, obviously I miss a lot of the opportunities that I would have gotten over the past five months, but um, it's all about, you know, adapting and making the most of what life throws at you. And, and through a lot of the merchandising I've been trying to do and just, you know, work from home with voiceovers and things of that nature, I'm trying. So um, I'm looking forward to getting back out there as well. And, in the meantime, I'll just keep doing my thing and keep preparing because you never know when that opportunity is going to come. That's right. You talked about being out on the road, Joe, um, and you've, you've gone a lot of different places. Do you have a favorite or maybe the coolest place you've ever visited? Um, love going to New York City, obviously, because that place is just so overwhelming. Um, love going to England. When I was younger, I, I went to Doncaster, England four times, and I would say right up there with New York and Toronto, they are my favorite wrestling fans I've ever heard in person. Um, they were loud. Chicago, too. Um, loud, loud, loud fans. So passionate. Um, I loved going to Dallas uh, because I, I had a chance to visit the, uh, the JFK Museum. I loved New Orleans. Got a chance to walk Bourbon Street. Um, Bourbon Street at, at WrestleMania weekend is, is one of the foremost memories in my head um, because it, li it really gives you a sense of understanding how much our business can just take over an entire city in one weekend where you're walking down, you know, one of the most famous streets in the world and you've got people doing the Daniel Bryan yes chants in probably five or six different languages. You've got um, you, you look to the left and Tommy Dreamer's walking by you. You look to the right and there's Teddy Hart and his stupid cat. And there's all these people all <laughs> over the place just with one thing in common, just a love and a passion for pro wrestling. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, and of course, you know, I, I have to mention some of the other foreign countries have gone to. I was in Mexico for the first time last year. I was in the Middle East for the first time in February in Qatar. And those just wild culture shocks man when you're when you're 17 you don't expect that mexico and the middle east are going to need an english announced team on site but they do and and um uh, i i've uh i'm very thankful those opportunities came up i hope to you know add japan to that list at some point but um damn i just get to see different cultures and, and different cities and just you know, from the smallest of the small podunk towns to some of the biggest cities in the world. I mean, where else but pro wrestling could take you on all those journeys? This is true. Very true. Uh, can we talk maybe about a couple of your projects? I know you have a, uh, a release. I love talking about my projects. Of course, of course. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about the Montreal Theory. 
Oh my gosh, the Montreal theory was me putting on my Jesse Ventura conspiracy theory hat and uh, <laughs> just asking the world, what if, you know? I mean, wrestling is built on a lie. It's not a malicious lie, but it, it's a lie that we all willingly accept um, that what we're seeing is what it is. And of course, it isn't always what it is. Um, sometimes rarely. Uh, so the fact that the most controversial and historic event happens in the history of wrestling and everybody just takes Brett and Vince's word on it was very interesting to me. Um, especially when you had guys like Jerry Lawler and Kevin Nash and, and, and the New Age Outlaws who uh, just came out and said, I don't buy it. I think they were in on it together. I think it's a work. Um you look at Wrestling with Shadows and the fact that it was a direct narrative for Brett's side of the story. You look at the fact that everybody benefited from it financially, um, fame-wise, whatever you want to look at. It seems so convenient and so perfect that, uh, you know, after so many years of, of, of watching the JFK conspiracy theories and just hearing some of these, uh, um, let's say, counterculture opinions out there, why not apply that to wrestling? And Montreal Theory is disc one telling the story as we know it. And disc two is taking some very intelligent minds like a Steve Carino, like a Tony Mamaluke, like uh, uh, some of the names I'd mentioned previously in, in some archival footage. Just let them debate. What if? Is it possible? Could it have happened? When? How? Um, and I think that is in many ways um, to some still very open-ended. There are people that will swear on either side of the aisle on that. And as I was making it, my opinion changed as we went on, depending on what part we were talking about. So um, I don't think it's impossible that Brett and Vince had a closed-door agreement somewhere. Is it likely? I don't know. I don't think it's impossible. And we discuss and debate the um, validity of such in the Montreal theory. Do you have other conspiracy-like topics for future releases or no this is your maybe one and done when it comes to conspiracy theories i mean if if it if it hits me um okay. i'll jump into it um a after i did montreal carino suggested that i do um an in-depth on on the bruiser brody murder mm -hmm. and that would involve me going to puerto rico so i did not do an in-depth on the bruiser brody murder. <laughs> um i'm <laughs> I prefer being safe and being here and, and, and not stoking uh, certain fires. But um, yeah, a lot of the wrestling conspiracy theories and the urban legends, I mean, with, with the internet being what it's become in the past 15 years, a lot of them you can pretty much prove or debunk. Um, you know, if, if Mula were still alive, I'd love to go back to the first street job with her and, and, and Wendy. Um, Still could, technically, but I think without Moolah, it loses a lot of its luster. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, everybody knows about, like, the Russo-Hogan issue and, and, and things like that. But if the right thing hits me where it's like, mm, nobody's done a deep dive and, and, and turned over that stone yet, I'll be on it. Okay. All right. Um, what about a couple of other projects that you'd like to talk about? You, you pick. What would you, what would you like to tell the listeners and the viewers about? that you have in your well, uh, catalog. I mean, 
I, I think the other uh, cult favorite that most people point to is something called the Legend of Virgil and his traveling merchandise table. And uh, that's you where love Virgil. Virgil and, uh, no, I, I, <laughs> not loving Virgil is why I made it because I had to be next to him at WrestleCon in I forget if it was Dallas or New Orleans, um, Steel City Con in Pittsburgh, uh, an appearance that got Virgil banned from Steel City Con, and uh, IWC in the span of about six or eight months i was next to him for you know three separate engagements three different parts of the country for a total of you know whatever i probably spent a you know a, an actual total of a week next to him if you combine all three engagements um and i had to hear the lies about how many wrestlemanias he was in and how much his autograph is worth and how big his penis is and just everything else you could think of and a lie about under the sun <laughs> Virgil found a way to lie about it. And I posted my experience after Steel City Con. Here's a list of, you know, 12 or 14 things. It's still on my website now, joe-dombrowski.com. Uh, 12 or 14 things he lied about this weekend. And the thing went viral. There were hundreds of comments and hundreds of shares. And everybody, yeah, he told me this. He told me he was best friends with Michael Jackson. He told me he was best friends with Mike Tyson. He told me that he was in 17 WrestleManias. And all this other stuff. And... I was thinking there and I was like, God, I have to do a DVD, right? I, I've got to do one. And then I'm like, but then I got to spend the day with him and it's not worth it. And then, I mean, uh, Sam Roberts, who's a great guy and he's doing some of the WB uh, pre-show panels now. He had LonelyVirgil.net where you'd log on there and you'd see Virgil at his merchandise table and nobody around and people just falling asleep and just not giving a damn about him. Um, that was popular. That that got play on, you know, Opie and Anthony show. I mean, that was that was a big time deal. Um, so eventually, just God, I have to. Especially, virtually lives a half hour from me. That's not something I'm proud of, but it's true. <laughs> uh, so I sat down with Virgil in his apartment, which was already decorated with pictures of him. By the way, I didn't need to do that as a set. <laughs> um, I asked him to set up his merchandise table, and um, I, I, I just let him talk. And we did the pop-up video effects to fact-check him later and post. We asked him a bunch of questions. We had Virgil stories from promoters and fans alike who've encountered him. And we asked him about Lonely Virgil, about setting up his table at, at Bridal Expos and the New York City subway. And... We presented Virgil in what I feel to be a um, accurate light, let's say, for better or worse. Um, that, if you want to laugh, that's probably my favorite. Um, if you want to feel something, I, I, I recommend finding Zach Allen because we told the life story of the first one-legged wrestler in the history of the business, cancer survivor, drug addict survivor. Um, to a, a family man and then one of the most genuine and, and, and personable people I've ever met today. Uh, his, to, to me, his story is, is my favorite story in wrestling. It doesn't get 10% of the play it deserves, but I do uh, enjoy that. Um, my two newest releases, I just put out Legacy, Rowdy Roddy Piper, which profiles the career of the Hot Rod as told by over 60 different legends. Wow. I've pulled from different interviews over the years, everybody from Bob Orton to Greg Valentine to 
Holland Nash to Lou Albano, just a, a motley crew of people telling road stories and memories of matches and, 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 and just experiences with Hot Rod. Um, that's over four hours of Piper goodness. And I also put out Wrestling from the Heartland, which was myself and Les Thatcher deep diving on the lost developmental territory, the HWA in Cincinnati, Ohio, that helped churn out guys like Nigel McGinnis and Shark Boy and Umaga and Jamie Noble. Um, and the list goes on and on about the guys that have been John Cena passed through those doors. Uh, so many guys. Um, John Roxley. But, uh, yeah, I mean, dozens and dozens of names, Charlie Haas, um, that really put themselves on the map thanks to their teaching with Les. And uh, that was just volume one. We're going to put out more in the future. But uh, uh, Les and I do a new commentary track. We tell the inside stories, what it was like to train there, to travel, to live there, and to just experience what it's like to be WWF developmental back in the day, working with OVW, working with Jim Ross, um, all sorts of things like that. And um, I'm very proud of it. I just sent a copy to Sharkboy last week. He told me how much he was enjoying it. And I think it's a very accurate portrayal of uh, a very unique time in the business when there was only one national promotion and just everybody scratched and clawing trying to earn what little jobs there were left. What is your favorite Virgil lie? Oh God, my favorite Virgil lie. <laughs> um, God, I go through the encyclopedia of all of them. <laughs> um, I I I appreciate Virgil telling everybody that he was in the main event of WrestleMania four. Which uh, now you may be thinking it was a title tournament. It was Randy Savage beating Ted DiBiase, but that is not what Virgil says. Okay, it was actually Virgil in the match. Uh, with Ted, um, maybe he put Andre in the match too. I don't know, but it was and against Hulk and Macho. If you ask Virgil, he was in that match at mm -hmm. WrestleMania four, and he main evented that uh, that SOB man. I'm sure. I'm sure he sold the place out. I'm sure they all paid just to see him. Right. Oh, <laughs> so is it safe to say you've never bought a Virgil autograph picture? <laughs> um. See, I mean. I don't want to spoil it, but uh, the legend of Virgil may or may not end with me purchasing a picture because <laughs> we were sitting behind his merchandise table and we did have the picture set up. And I mean, sometimes you just feel it. Like I can't help it. It's, it's like uh, magnetism. It's hypnotic. You know, I, I was drawn to it. And, uh, you know, maybe I undercut him a little. Maybe I didn't. You got to tune in to find out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Now, with all the the stuff you've done in wrestling, with play by play, ring announcing, you've done uh, front office stuff, and all kind of stuff. Has there ever been any kind of uh, actual in ring training or any aspirations of being a wrestler, or do you just go straight for the play by play and the announcing from the get go? I mean, if you'd asked me as a kid, I would have said I would love to do it. But as time went on, I realized that um, if I had any gifts, they were verbal, they were mental, they were not physical. I wasn't the most coordinated, still aren't, not the most confident. Um, I just don't think I'd be any good at it. Um, I've had one match, um, match, which was, you know, glorified uh, ha-ha. But um, 
anything beyond that, not not really interested. Um, food is too much of a vice, and um, I my back hurts as it is, and I don't take bumps, so it probably would not be uh, not be long for the wrestling world if I did that. I I much more prefer being behind the play by play chair and. Um, Leave them to do what they do best, and, and I'll do what I do best. There you go. Who might you put on a Mount Rushmore of commentators in the sport of pro wrestling? I think JR is the best to ever do it. Um, you have to put Gordon Soley on there because JR would say Gordon's the best to ever do it. And without Gordon, I don't know that we have that whole generation that came after him. Um, Lance Russell um, would be a personal favorite um, because of, I mean, even though I live in Pittsburgh, I grew up watching Memphis footage and Lance was, he was folksy, but he was so relatable and he talked to the audience in such a way and he reacted in such a way where you always knew he was genuine and authentic. Um, and if we're going, if we're going on my personal preferences here, which I guess we are, um, then I got to cheat a little bit. And the fourth head would be the team of Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, um, because that was, if there's a reason I fell in love with commentary, it was the 1992 Royal Rumble, and, and Monsoon and Heenan playing off of each other, and just the masterful way they told that whole story, and and they were a huge part of what hooked me. And you could have put any other announced team in that position. And I would not remember that match as vividly. Um, Nobody's ever been quicker on their feet than Bobby. Nobody's ever had as many random uh, 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 lovable catchphrases as Gorilla Monsoon. And um, I mean, I've gotten comparisons to, to Gorilla and Bobby with certain color guys with me. And I will never come close to being that good but I appreciate just being thought of in that same ballpark. And I think that's the best possible thing you could hope for there. I mean, when I'm a kid, I'm, 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 I got my wrestling action figures and I'm literally sitting there arguing with myself, trying to replicate Monsoon and Heenan because they just had that much of an impact on uh, how I viewed the business and how I took it in. And um, there will never be a team with uh, better chemistry than them for my money. Now, I'm going to say, Joe, that I will argue with you a little bit because I grew up in the 70s and 80s and Gordon Soley with Championship Wrestling from Florida and Georgia Championship Wrestling, he was the dean of announcing in my book. Uh, Gordon was just, uh, it tickled me, it's a vertical souple, not a suplex, (laughs) <laughs> but other than that, Gordon Soley was the man uh, for all of my childhood. Yeah, I, I think Gordon is unequivocally the absolute best of his time. I think Gordon influenced everybody that came after him, that, or at least anybody that took the, the, the role seriously. And um, the way he was able to play off of his partners like Roddy Piper or Buddy Colt or wherever he may have wound up um, speaks to him as well. The fact that he can be around uh, such colorful characters and maintain his poise and his, uh, his journalistic integrity for lack of a better uh, uh, verbiage. Um, 
Gordon, I don't think, will ever get the credit he deserves by today's audience. Um, but again, I, I think without Gordon, you don't have Jim Ross. And, and without Jim Ross, God, you miss so much of professional wrestling in the last 30 years. So, um, you know, I, I still stand behind JR, but I mean, God, if anybody argues Gordon over JR, I, I can't argue with that because if there's anybody that would replace him on that list, I think Gordon would be the guy. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Lance Russell is sorely and sadly underrated. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think if Lance would have traveled more um, and, and adapted more to a national audience, more people would love Lance. I mean, he just had no reason to leave. Mm-hmm. He was on the number one rated wrestling show in the, <laughs> the country as it was. Um, but yeah, Lance... Uh, that Southern draw calling Jerry Lawler at the Mid-South Coliseum, Memphis, Tennessee, is, is something ingrained in me for life. Yeah. Do you uh, – I, I imagine much like many of us, you're a collector of memorabilia of pro wrestling. Do you have a favorite or, like, the coolest piece? Coolest piece, man. I mean, um, action figures were a huge part of um, – of my youth. So I love the fact I've been able to go back and, and, and kind of recollect a lot of those Hasbro and uh, LJN um, pieces of merchandise uh, in their package still. Um, I've had to kind of bow out in recent years because the, the, the market has just grown sky high price wise. Um, I've got a lot. I still, I still have my old magazine. Just anything that I grew up with for the most part, I still have. Um, nowadays, a lot of my joy comes in just finding rare pieces and, and, and kind of reselling them and re, re, you know, finding a new home for them. Um, you know, if I have a favorite action figure, God, a, a few years ago, I finally found a Hasbro one, two, three kid, um, oh. not in the package, but I never had it when I was a kid. Um, you know, I, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to have the 1997 Survivor Series on its original VHS release. That's worth a pretty penny these days. Oh, yes. Um, Not too long ago, I just purchased uh, this Andre the Giant mug from 1985. You can see that on the camera. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I enjoy that. I don't know if that's my favorite. Is there a favorite? I have no idea. I just bought a Jeff Jarrett guitar at a flea market, but that wouldn't count. Um, <laughs> wait, I mean, at a flea, it, wait, stop, wait, 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 don't bury the lead. Did you say at a flea market? No. <laughs> yeah, it was a flea market. And wow. I was walking by somebody's table. They had nothing else wrestling related. It wasn't even a good setup. It was dingy, just old, like, dirty-looking DVD players and just, you know, gardening tools and stuff like that. And there's a guitar-shaped box, and I notice Jeff Jarrett's um, laser-printed face on it. And, God, how, how do you go to a flea market and not buy a TNA Jeff Jarrett guitar, right? Right. Got to. Right. So that's, that, that's the newest artifact I'm proud of. I don't know if I'm going to get rid of that or, or maybe teach myself to play some acoustic with it. Uh, I don't really know. Um, but we'll see. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my action figure and DVD collection is absolutely absurd. And picking a favorite item is like people asking, pick a favorite match you called. I mean, 
it's like it's like picking your favorite child and you've got six thousand kids how do you do it you know? <laughs> very cool yeah if uh if i could step away from like the wrestling part of it and uh you have some time away from coat with covid and all that you said you have time to rest and regroup and it looks like that you do other stuff that and actually one of these i never really even considered even i'm even a promoter myself but uh we when we film our events we do live color and all that um but you do uh outsourcing work on your website you have a section where it's outsource announcing and voiceover for hire and i never really even actually considered that concept uh do you want to talk a little bit about that for maybe some promoters or people out there looking for that kind of work I mean, I realized at a young age that I was never going to be, like I said, the draw. I was never going to be somebody that is going to catch fire and is going to hit all the super indie promotions every single weekend because people will pay to see me. No one's paying to see me. I'm there to enhance everybody else. So I knew that, that convincing some promoters that I need a flight to get to your show or I need my gas cover on this eight hour drive was not feasible for them to do. And it's just not how the business model is constructed. And I never took that personally. I understand that's the nature of the beast. Um, if I was a promoter, I'd probably think in a similar way, if not the exact same way. So I started doing um, voiceover for hire um, out of my home. So I can do your events and you don't have to pay transportation costs. Uh, you don't have to pay hotel costs. Um, I, you don't have to book a carload to travel with me. There's none of these logistic nightmares that come with booking a road trip. Just send me a file and I'll sit here and do it. And my first client was ECWA out in Delaware. And I got a chance to, you know, call a super eight tournament. I got a chance to, to work with a lot of great talent out there that I normally wouldn't. And it just kind of grew from there. And I've done Ring of Honor work from uh, home. I've done pay-per-view from home. I've done international from home. Uh, the reason I was flown to the Middle East, it was because I, I, I reached out to the promoter and did the first event from home. Um, and it, it's just a chance to have a promoter who's on a budget and maybe can't afford that flight or afford that car full to enhance their announcing enhance their the, the presentation of their talent and their stories on a budget and um it's gone very well ever since i mean um up until covid i think it was very rare to find a week that I didn't have a new project in my inbox from somebody um you know it's how i, I started working with prestige wrestling in oregon and you know a number of others so um you know, and I, I've seen other announcers start to do it and, and start to develop it. And certainly as time and technology advances, I'm sure even more will. But uh, I'm proud to be, to my knowledge, the first one that did that and still doing it to this day. Um, you know, just again, like I said, it, it's adapt to your surroundings and you can either make excuses or you can take the reality and you can make it work. And I decided to make it work and, and it's led to a lot of new opportunities for me since then. And, and hopefully it's helped out uh, all the promotions that service my clients too. Very cool. Now is wrestling the only thing you do voiceover for, or do you do voiceover for like films or commercials or anything? I'm open to it. I've done a couple of small bit parts just for, you know, pocket change. You know, I, I've tried to break into a more broad-based business um, of entertainment, just like I did with wrestling. And, 
you know, by my own admission, I really haven't put the full effort into that that I could. Um, and a lot of that was just, I was so busy with pro wrestling that, well, I've got a paid gig here and that's got to take priority. And, and a lot of those other aspirations kind of went to the back burner because I had so much on my plate from a wrestling standpoint. It's something I want to explore. And to be completely honest, I probably should have been exploring it more during COVID, but everything's just kind of, you know, been at a, at a standstill and I've, I've needed the time. But um, I'm, I'm more than open to any opportunities that may come my way. I've talked to advertising executives and things, things of that nature. Like the feelers are out there like, hey, if you ever need a guy, um, it just comes down to, to the right, you know, moon and the stars aligning. But hopefully I'll have a chance to do more uh, uh, someday. And, and maybe it's again, that'll be a hand that's forced of me, depending on, you know, how the pro wrestling climate looks moving forward realistically, which, which we don't know. So I'm open for any and all opportunities out there. Cool. You wanna, so you want to switch gears there, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my final question, Joe already answered. He, he can't pick out his favorite match he's called. So my, my questions are done. I tap out. Uh, he blew, yeah, I'd have he to blew your spot you, on that one. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to give you five or ten. I mean, I mean certain, certain matches and moments stand out. I think the most famous match I've called was probably uh, Davey Richards and Tyler Black at Ring of Honor Death Before Dishonor. Um, there's a number of Ring of Honor matches that be on the list. Um, any Motor City Machine Gun tag match will wind up on the list. A lot of the early Johnny Gargano matches that I had a chance to do uh, um, in PWO and Prime Wrestling would be on the list. Um, a lot of the matches with, with DJZ in uh, IWC, I've known him since he was 16. Those would be on the list. Um, but, I mean, every place I've gone – there, there's always those those two or three matches at least that just stand out as when you're in the moment you feel like you're part of something special that's when you know you know that's when you you realize and um that's happened a number of times but to narrow it down man i would need probably a week and just <laughs> every match listing in front of me to figure that out but but there are certain moments and not even necessarily matches, but moments that, that mm -hmm. stick out and are near and dear to my heart because you're able to trigger that emotional response. You're able to just fit into that moment so perfectly and, and, and take something to a new level. And, and it really, uh, you know, wrestling's about moments and it's about, you know, uh, 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 things that just stick with you over time and to be able to be a, a part of those, whether it's as an announcer or a producer or any job title, it's, the most rewarding thing I've experienced. Well, I'm going to steer this a little bit differently, Joe. Um, and we talked about this uh, before we came on air. Um, horror movies. Okay. Um, if, you know, I, I don't know how much you like horror movies, but I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite horror movie? Well, I mean, if, if you sat me down now and, and asked me to watch um, one movie or one series of movies, I guess, um, I would have to go with the Saw series. Um, I think that's the only horror anthology I've watched from start to finish. Um, and it's, it's really the only anthology where it's left me on such an edge of my seat where God, now I got to see what happens in the next one, or I got to see how they swerve me again. Um, they were so intelligently done. 
and always kept you guessing. Um, and even as with any series, as the sequels continue to grow in numbers, sometimes you get diminishing returns. But, um, you know, me being somebody that's, that's such a proponent of story and, and, and kind of puts himself in a writer's mentality to begin with, right. sometimes it can be difficult to, to throw me off the scent, but, but they did that quite often, and I appreciated that. And um, I'll tell you what I enjoy almost as much as good horror movies, and that's bad horror movies. Because <laughs> another thing I've been watching a lot of in my downtime has been going through Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. And a lot of those old, just campy cult hits sure. from the 50s and 60s that they've been riffing on. Um, I enjoy those a lot. And I think, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who will say that the, the only thing better than good wrestling is bad wrestling. I think a lot of times you can apply that to movies, too. Absolutely. And I will agree with you on the, on the Saw series. I've got all of them, and it is just... You, you don't know where it's coming next if you haven't seen it. I mean, it yep. is really a unique series. But I think Donnie has a question for you because we're going to start doing this on every show we do at Donnie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn this over to you. All right. Yeah, it's something we just started uh, last show, and it's horror-related. Um, if you were the villain in a horror film, what would be your number one go-to kill? Like what weapon would I use or what method would I use? Yep. How would you kill how, somebody? How would you kill somebody? Okay. What would be your go-to method? Because like if you wanted specific names of people I would kill, that's a whole other podcast. You guys in like an, an NDA first. We'd have to <laughs> We're done talking about Virgil. That's what <laughs> well done, Donnie. Well done. Touche. Touche. Um Gosh, well, I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like a lot of the the, the the killers they get off on on power and control, right? So, um, if I, if I'm going old school, you got to go the old fashioned strangulation route. But if we're if we're going for gore, for going for extravagant, God, maybe run a wood chipper. I mean, yeah. just. Okay. Go all in with something. But then you can't watch them suffer if they go into the wood chipper head first. So True. <laughs> Very true. Maybe some kind of impalement. No, I like the wood chipper. Maybe chippers. a samurai sword. <laughs> <laughs> wood chipper's not bad. I mean, I, I watched a wood chipper claim the life of one of the most beloved wrestling characters as, as a child. Young uh, Moppy, Perry Saturn's mascot. So I know the horrors. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'd watch them suffer, man. But I, I gravitate more towards the um, the actual serial killers and just studying their mentality than, than more so the horror movie killers. Um, guys like Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein and Ted Bundy, I think, are, are just fascinating to read into and just kind of study the method of their madness. Um, you know, Atticus Coger in, in Cleveland, who's, who's blowing up all over the independence now, obviously he takes, um, you know more than a bit of influence from Ed Gein with, with some of his rotting human flesh masks and things of that nature. So, um, you know, that was uh, a unique talent to look after, let's say, for, for the few years that he's been uh, on the scene. But I always appreciate the kind of disturbing psychological makeup of that type of people because um, I'm not just somebody that looks at things at face value. I always ask why and how and just 
digging into why they are the way they are to me is just so enthralling. Okay. Some great insight into killing a person. I mean, I, I think that's great. Not that I've ever done it. I mean, and, <laughs> <Yet>. <laughs> and, and until, until I get caught, that's my story. Um, and not that I'm taking notes and not that I have um, a map of the city hidden in my basement. I don't, and I resent the accusation. That's great. So, um, Joe, tell us, as we wind down here, um, how can people find out more about Joe Dombrowski? Um, well, I mean, uh, my criminal history is public record, and uh, you can find all that listed there. Joe-Dombrowski.com is my website. It's got uh, my bio. It's got all my DVDs for sale. It's got the original post that caused the Virgil fanaticism um, <laughs> under the appropriate header of what happened to my life. Um, so uh, uh, that's that's going on on there. I got a $3 blowout sale with a bunch of great titles like uh, these Ring of Honor releases, PWG, a whole lot more. Uh, I made a great deal with High Spots. They, they took care of me and I'm letting things go factory sealed, brand new dirt cheap. So if you're into Ring of Honor, PWG, FIP Wrestling Revolver, shooter interviews, that kind of thing. Check it out because we've got almost 100 titles available. We've got a dozen sold out already, but still a lot of good stuff available. ProWrestlingLibrary.com is my website for my digital side. All of my titles we've talked about, Montreal, Virgil, Heartland, Piper, all the ones that are on DVD on the main site are on digital, MP4, and download on ProWrestlingLibrary.com. We are closing in on 500 hours of footage there available. You can buy, rent, or subscribe. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, at, I believe, uh, URL backslash Joe Dombrowski PW, uh, Joe underscore Dombrowski on Twitter, uh, Joseph underscore Dombrowski on Instagram. I also have a YouTube channel, Mr. Joe Dombrowski. Can you tell I have a lot of time on my hands lately? Um, all <laughs> these different profiles uh, you can find. Um, Cool anecdotes, merchandise for sale, just rare videos I post that interest me from, from the territories, anything of that nature. If you're a wrestling nerd, um, I think you'll appreciate it. I try to keep things mostly lighthearted. haven't always been able to do that in recent times, but uh, try to make sure we're having fun and we're, we're talking about the passion that we love and slinging some cool products out there to the masses as well. So if you're into it, check on in. If uh, anything in this conversation has enthused you, um, check out one of these projects. Let me know if you like it. If not, I invite you to spend your wrestling dollar and support what you do like and help the industry because that's the only way we all grow is just propping up and supporting those things that we enjoy. Well, I can't, I can't say, I can't speak for the other guys, but I'm a pro wrestling nerd. So I'm sure these guys too are, but I, like I said, I can't speak for them. But uh, check out Joe Dombrowski and all of his social media aspects. Donnie, John, any last questions for Joe? Uh, no, no. But uh, I am a wrestling nerd, Jim. I bought some Portland wrestling DVDs on Amazon. Come on. I'm who sorry. else does that? <laughs> yeah, the slacker, that's who. <laughs> Donnie? Yeah, no, I think we covered all the bases and uh, good talk. All right, great. Joe, thank you so much for being a guest on the 
Wrestle Horror Podcast, along with myself, Donnie Hoover, and John Orlando. Um, this has been a great conversation. I hope people check out all your social media outlets, buy some of your videos. Um, thank you so much for being on here, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us on all, all of our social media outlets, facebook.com backslash WrestleHorror, Instagram at WrestleHorror, Twitter at WrestleHorror, on our YouTube channel, the WrestleHorror channel. Also, you can find us at www.wrestlehorror.com. Oh, my God.